Welcome to Invisible Machines, your podcast at the intersection of UX and AI. I'm your host, Josh Tyson, and if you joined us last week, we talked a bit about how to deappify your thinking, uh, how to stop thinking of technology in terms of point solutions or tools or apps, and start to see it as more of an ecosystem where those individual bits of technology are sequenced together to do bigger things. So in this episode, we're gonna talk a bit about the heightened levels of experimentation and risk that businesses and business leaders need to reckon with as they uh, tackle conversational AI. If you're new to the podcast, uh, I'm the co-author of Age of Invisible Machines, a book that I wrote along with Rob Wilson, who is the CEO and co-founder of one of the world's leading conversational AI platforms, OneReach.ai. One of the reasons Rob in particular wanted to get this book out into the world was to help debunk some of the myths surrounding this technology. Uh, one of the big myths being that it is an add-on or some sort of bolt-on, that conversational AI is just another app in your ecosystem. Uh, and and this, uh, this discussion kind of continues that conversation. So we'll go ahead and get to that in a moment. Uh, I did want to mention that next week we have a special guest episode Greg Vert, who is a principal at Deloitte and has led all sorts of large uh, digital transformations for enterprise, is going to join us to share some of his insights. He's got a lot of interesting ideas and thought leadership, especially surrounding HR and the role that human resources can play in putting technology at the center of an organization. For now, let's go ahead and continue that conversation with Rob that we started last week. Enjoy. One so like the businesses that are most proactive about reorganizing themselves and breaking down their internal silos. And I mean, obviously for like tech first companies, this journey is a lot easier, but the businesses that are able to do that more quickly uh -huh. are going to be clearly at an advantage, but is there maybe also some hesitance because of how much it changes the structure of a business or I, I would, I would be surprised if they're thinking about like, the idea of a business being obsolete, but I wonder if there's inklings of it you know, well, in some you of these actions. You got this challenge in some cases, right? Which is you got you got people at the higher level that don't have their hands in the technology or the tools every day. So they're sort of depend on the people on the ground that are using the tools to help decide which tools they should use and which tools they shouldn't use. Then you get the people on the ground who get paid to use the tools and now someone's got to make a decision to change that whole structure which threatens the people on the ground right many of them um, we see that in our business where you know a lot of companies have these big infrastructure uh, telephony infrastructure components and teams that work on them and you know to walk in and say, yeah, none of that's necessary anymore. You don't need it. What, you know, when those are the teams deciding on the technology that they're going to adopt, uh, you end up in this tough puzzle, right? Which is people who aren't close enough to the tech to really evaluate and architect and figure out how to do this um, at the top level, making decisions that need to fund it. And the folks at the bottom that come in and look for tools that are more incremental change so they don't see their jobs going away or their jobs being changed dramatically. And so, you know, how does an organization wire around 
radical change or disruptive change, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a people problem. The technology is there already, but it is a people problem. It's a, it's a, takes, you know, technical leadership that can see through the limited view of some of their folks that's, you know, are, are trying to achieve incremental change. And again, if, if everyone is in that boat and everyone adopts incremental change as a general approach, you know, it will be fine. Right. But if half go fast or 20% adopt at speed, uh, then you're going to have major disruption of those who, you know, are in the incremental change mode and with each industry, with each solution, it's going to be more and more clear. Um, so, you know, we just haven't seen the first industry pull ahead yet. Um, and kind of create the fear. Uh, what we have seen recently, which I find is interesting, it might be hyped a bit, but OpenAI and Google. We're seeing the founders come back. We're seeing like, we're seeing a, a bit of a freak out, right? <laughs> uh, it, it's funny, if you look at the people less, the companies less technical savvy, they're not freaking out. Right, because they don't, they don't know enough to freak out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Google's freaking out because they they can see it, um, and so that moment of oh, holy, you know, crap, we better, what are we going to do to respond to this? We got to move fast. Uh, you know, each company is going to have their holy crap moment, and and it really is blindsiding them, right? I mean, it's so well, it sounds clear. like within within like maybe five years, the business landscape could be totally different. Where yeah, you know, companies, enterprise companies that have legacies of a century or more might just be gone because they didn't take it seriously enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it can happen to Google, right? Mm hmm. I mean, man, <laughs> like they thought search was. If, if you went back a year and a half, a everybody would have thought they own search. There's no threat. Google's just got this in the bag. No, no threat on the horizon. In a, in a matter of months, that turned into emergency meetings and founders coming back. I Google. That's going to happen across the board. Yeah, and I mean, Google's a tech company that's probably been paying somewhat close attention to what right. OpenAI has they been doing. They have Lambda. Yeah, they have their own yeah. version of it. But like many of these big companies, that is in a silo within Google. You know, the implications not understood by all the different areas, not understood at the high level. And that's that's the problem. That's It's understood, but not at the t highest level. I mean, it's, I mean, it's why we wrote the book, right? It's to try yeah. to talk to folks at a higher level and say, hey guys, like, you know, let's try to help you understand the implications of this technology um, so you can manage your company towards this radical change that's hitting you. It's just, in my view, people have been talking about AI is going to come in and change the world. Um, 
and and then they're seeing these you know incremental applications of ai and they're like ah, it doesn't seem that big right the hype it's because it's not systemic in their mind right that they're they're just thinking and looking small like oh i can now see if customers are about to churn based on ml it doesn't systemically understand that that put into a whole framework of conversational ai and everything else suddenly means that you know you're on your way to a decentralized organization that's fully autonomous or at least mostly autonomous and that that's going to happen overnight um so uh yeah, and google's looking down the barrel of it and they yeah as we said they 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 were aware of at least somewhat what was coming so yeah yeah it, it should be frightening for, yeah, and companies, companies like us are trying to to help those who see it, right? To sort of come to us with a hurry up, panic. Most most companies just head in the sand, no idea this is heading their way. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to be, you know, one of those alarmists. <laughs> I feel like I'm just I'm just showing the facts that exist out there. Here's Google that that's just news, right? That's not my news. It's, it's Google news. And we're, if Google's freaking out about, you know, GPT attacking search, what, what else is on the table? Mm -hmm. What other software is on the table? All of our software is on the table. Just, it's just about those kind of low beams, high beams, right? You got Google with its high beams on seeing it. And then you got most companies with their low beams on. They're like, I don't see anything. <laughs> I don't see what you're talking about. Um, yeah, or they assume that, it, well, that's that's Google's problem. That yeah. And that specifically isn't necessarily their problem, but they're going to, you know, there's, this is just the first of many of these kind of hyper disruptions that we talk about in the book. Like we, and, and what's funny is like how unpredictable or how unprepared the world seemed for it. Yes. Even people who were so close to it yeah. um, were, were blindsided by it. So, I mean. Yeah. And I think it's partly like, how do you become prepared? <laughs> you know, I think that's well, what everybody's asking. Like, great, I, let me subscribe to your alarmist attitude, right? <laughs> but how do, okay, now what? Now how do I, how do I sign up for doing something about it? Because if I can't do anything about it, then that it does make sense. Just put it away and focus on what you can, what you can affect. I think that's, that's going to be super hard. I think there's, you know, not a lot of people with a ton of experience in the conversational AI space um, that you can tap. And, and as the adoption curve really hits here and more and more companies are trying to tap those resources, they're going to, you know, be very scarce. They're already scarce. They're going to become incredibly scarce. Uh, and it, it's, it's an interesting, uh, dichotomy, I think, because you've got a world where robots and machines are going to take over a lot of the jobs that we do today and a lot of the tasks that we do today. Um, but, uh, but what's, preventing that from happening at scale is people to implement the automation. <laughs> so we have a human capital issue where we don't have enough people to help companies automate 
Otherwise, automation would be scaling faster. And adoption will be limited by the number of people who educate, who are educated on how to pull this off. Um, so it's, you know, training and it's on this a, stuff. A, oh, yeah. And, and it's happening at a time where people are really rethinking what work means to them. Like what place yeah. in their life does productivity or a job or a role or a title really have? Yeah. Uh, and, and that adds a lot of absolutely intrigue to the stew. Yeah. Yeah. The paradigm of I evaluate myself based on my productivity, you know, um, being questioned, which we know each generation questions that more and more and more, right? The, mm -hmm. it, it, how many generations calls the generation below them lazy, right? It's just, uh, <laughs> it's almost a cliche. It is a cliche, right? So, but what what's really potentially happening here is they're like, as a in my measure as a person, shouldn't be what I produce. Should be like how I am as a parent, my relationships with other people, the quality of those relationships, and the quality of my contribution to society as a whole in a creative way. These are things that fuel us, and um, and how many widgets I can produce in an hour. <laughs> Just, you know, no one's on their deathbed wishing they could, you know, they could have produced more widgets. Uh, so, yeah. It's yeah, like I, we, we table all these things that are really important to us as humans, as biological entities yeah. in the name, in for, for the sake of productivity, which yeah. is, which is strange, which is yeah. also like, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's baked into business culture, but I think. Totally. It's your your, your employee culture. review, right? Your employee review comes along, and they yeah. say, "Hi, you're, you know, you're you're going to get a raise because you produced more than anybody else." How do you not, you know, go home and think, "Oh, that that matters. That that defines me." You know, you've been rewarded. You're now like competing against other people on the basis of your productivity. And, and you're winning, so based on the fact that you're winning, you start valuing it as a thing and you start defining yourself within that value. It just makes perfect sense. But in honesty, like, does it, you know, do we really get fueled by that? Is it truth? Is it, is that at the core of how we define ourselves at the end of the day when we die? Um, or is it those connections and family members and, you know, we, yeah. we retire. I mean, that's a thing, right? That used to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. The whole point of that is you you retire your your measure of productivity. Well, it also sort of means like you're done doing all the annoying shit that, right. <laughs> that you didn't yeah. enjoy for, for 50 years or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a thing to Yeah, and it's interesting. It's like, it's like, like. hyper-automation is almost bringing business concerns down and elevating human concerns to yeah. it, in a way like I, I think long term that's what it has the potential to do which yeah. again is like sort of bad for the traditional sense of what business is yeah um, and, and i i don't think that's friction that's maybe clear and present right now but it it feels like that's underneath a lot of this and yeah whether, well, whether realizing it or not yeah well you congratulate people for retiring <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were trying early. Good for you. But then we're afraid of machines taking our 
jobs. <laughs> it's just yeah. But then so there's a funny. lot of people who who don't really ever retire because they do work that right. is super meaningful to them. Right, because it's not it's not about what you produce, and you're able to produce effortlessly, you know, well into you know nearing the end of end of your life cognitive abilities. So yeah, it's um it's a new world though. I I am fascinated. I'll be watching closely on the Google stuff to see, you know, panic, boardroom. Now what do they do? What is the action that they take next? What what how does this how, how do these meetings um unfold into a strategy? And what does that strategy look like? Um what's the big pivot? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 how does that happen? Is it a restructuring of the company? Is it a is it a reallocation of capital? Is it all of the above? Is it, you know, culturally them having to relook at the fear of failure um within their org and understanding that, you know, that's driven or hampered innovation you know where does this where does this all go but when i see founders coming back what i see is you know uh, we need people who aren't afraid to fail we need people who will come in here and take risk and chances um so you know whether it that lies with founders or not i think the underlying message is clear we need to take more risks we need to take more chances this idea of creating a, a you know a, a low risk strategy for running the business the the mutual fund of of corporate strategy to preserve you know value in the company like capital preservation and wealth preservation as a motion for large businesses and enterprises um, suddenly uh, and ends up in being the best way to to lose your wealth <laughs> wealth preservation now becoming uh and and diversification strategies and and low risk mitigation strategies with lots and lots of tiers of approvals etc all ending up being the the Achilles heel of of being able to succeed as a as a business so yeah i i that's like i will be watching i think I won't be surprised if it if it does look look a lot like um, you know what we talk about in the book. Just a lot of experimenting, a lot more risk taking, and uh, cutting the red red tape, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, you you might have answered this question already just now but uh if there was if there was one realization that you could sort of snap your fingers and all of a sudden every executive at every company that you talk to had this realization i mean what would that be is there one thing you wish they just understood because i mean the, the complexity of it all of it all is is almost too daunting yeah um yeah but i wonder I, if there's an entry point yeah it's a, it's a if there's one thing for them to understand it's that they can't depend on other portions of the business to solve this problem or avert this issue um it's it's looking at google 
you know, same thing. You can't trust that your engineering team or your your people, your feet on the street are going to actually guide you around this one. You got to get involved yourself. They just don't have permission to fail at the level in which and take the risks that need to be taken. So you need these people that have at the higher levels that have been granted the permission to take big risks, well, you know, to take a million, two million, three million dollar risk uh, and fail at it and not lose their jobs. Um, these people have to come in and they have to, to take those risks. They can't defer that risk downward. Let, you know, the feet on the street make that decision and then absolve themselves of responsibility because it wasn't their call, which happens in a lot of cases, right? It's it's going to be people that can make decisions directly on the phone with vendors like us involved in those meetings, listening, reading their team, watching the fear, taking the responsibility onto their own shoulders and saying, look guys, like if this fails, it's on me. All I need from you guys is to just try your best. Um, and then a lot of, you know, diversification in terms of experimentation. Don't try one, try, try them all. Don't try one tool, try all the tools, um, especially in the conversational AI space. So. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like someone has to step up and kind of be willing to fall yeah. on the sword because yeah. like that old, it's not one of those situations where you can copy something your competitor does well no. and hope to outbox them that way. Because if they've if they've proven themselves at all, like with a success, yeah. they're, they're going to build on that and they're going to be so far ahead of you. Yeah. And you don't say, hey, go find a vendor for us on conversational AI. You need to be in those meetings. If you're a senior person, you need to be listening. Um, you need to elevate the conversation from features and functionality to overall strategy and uh, and big thinking, not incremental thinking. How does this tool, you know, ultimately, you know, change at a systemic level? And then that systemic thinking, getting your folks to think systemically. I want big shifts, not small shifts, big change, pushing them on big change. Um, and then the last piece, which is what I see a lot, is the show me the 10 other big companies that you've succeeded at doing this with, like, well, by the time that happens, it'll be too late. Um, yeah. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to go on, on trying to be one of those first. Uh, I, I've heard this from a number of people. We don't want to uh, be guinea pigs on any software. Like, well, <laughs> if you want to be the guinea pig, you, you've pretty much decided not to innovate um, by the sheer nature of that statement. So you're gonna have to hope to be the guinea pig. I think what we'll see come, you know, a year or two years from now, and we already see it a bit at one reach is, you know, companies will be, will be begging to be on the guinea pig list. This idea that, that companies are in the driver's seat, you know, because they have the money, um, you know, because of the limited number of people with expertise, you're going to see a huge scarcity in being able to provide people and vendors and tools. Um, and support for the number of companies that are going to be migrating from a traditional software to an AI-based system. That uh, 
that, yeah, getting on the list will be the hard part and there'll be plenty of charlatans out there that are willing to sell people who don't know what they're doing. Um, and it'll be very difficult to find out who's who's actually done it. We, we always say at One Race that an expert um, has to have at least done 10 production implementations uh, that were better, th that delivered better than human experiences. Uh, not too many people can say that. And so, yeah, should be a crazy, crazy time uh, coming up here, you know, exciting. And as we get past the, the discomfort of the, of the change, but yeah, exciting. Yeah. I mean, there's some real freedom and massive reward for people who are willing to take the plunge. Yeah. Um, but couldn't be a scarier time to do that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Will it be the small companies? Will it be the big companies? Will it be the startups? Um, but be yeah, the, the business landscape is going to be an interesting blend of things in the coming years. Yeah. Yep. Glad to be in it than a bystander watching it feeling yeah. helpless. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm scared too, along with everybody else, but at least I have the calm of be having my fingers in it and, and feeling an illusion of control. <laughs> Yeah, and what's really scary is the right people not doing it sort of the right, or at least close to the right way now. Yeah. Because if the wrong people do it the wrong way, our, our world looks a lot different, not, yep. not just in a business sense. like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. In, in the Terminator 2 sense, I suppose. Right, right. All right, thanks again for listening to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes. You can also watch new episodes on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Uh, next week, as I mentioned, we've got Greg Vert on the show. Greg is a principal at Deloitte who has done all sorts of remarkable work in digital transformation for enterprise. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that one. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank the marketing team at OneReach.ai for all your help and support. And thank you to Michael Litvinov, our video editor. Thanks again for watching or listening, and uh, we'll catch up with you next week.